Good morning, everybody. This is Jean Nathan, and um, <clears throat> like probably quite a few of out there of you out there, I have a little bit of a cold that I picked up on the streets of New Orleans during our fabulous um, cold Mardi Gras. But we continue. So this morning we're going to be talking about some of the exciting cultural things coming up this spring, and I have this really extraordinary woman and artist. Um, on the line uh, for us to open the show, and I guess I need to press line one, and I will have Jacqueline Humphreys, who is a native of New Orleans and also um, uh, an artist now residing in New York, but who has a, a really pretty extraordinary show um, open right now at the Contemporary Arts Center, and it's only open through the 28th of this month, y'all. So I'm, I'm, I have her on because I want you to be sure and see it. It is very unusual. It is not just paintings on a wall. It is black light paintings, and I'm going to ask her to explain that and where that all came from. Jacqueline, are you with us? Yes, I am. From New York, from Fulton Street? I'm actually my studio in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Ah, and and we have a huge crowd of Brooklynites here in New Orleans. Probably some of them listening today. So I've heard. Um, we, yeah, we've got we've had we have quite a few emigres here. Someday I fully expect you to emigre back too. Well, I might. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, first of all, let's start with um, you know let's start with what's up at the CAC right now because I want to make sure and get that in, and then we'll talk a little bit about your background and how you got to be the artist that you are today, which I love to share with people the um, the trajectory of creative careers because I want people who have those creative talents to know that they just need to kind of dig in and do it and and evolve into the artist that they can become. So um, tell me about the show that's up right now at the Contemporary Arts Center. Well, it's uh, it's two distinct groups of paintings. Uh, you know, and downstairs there's uh, some paintings I made in the last year uh, using uh, this uh, special paint that I make that's silver. It's like a metallic paint and you know, other colors, obviously, and uh, they're very large paintings. And uh, there's a lot of natural light on that floor, which really helps the paintings. They love natural light. And, uh, and then you go upstairs and you enter a dark room, you know, with no visible light, only black light. And those paintings are painted with um, fluorescent paints, uh, you know, what's known as day glow. And uh, but maybe not the kind of day glow colors that you're used to, because I do a lot of mixing the colors of making new black light colors. And um, those paintings, for the most part, are painted with um, big spray guns. You know, I have these guns that like spray rubber and they spray just tons of paint. It's sort of like painting with a fire extinguisher. And they're very large. They're about 10 feet. And, you know, they glow in the dark. <laughs> it's a, there's this kind of wow factor to them. But uh, hopefully there's other things in them that sort of keep you looking and sustain you beyond the initial sort of uh, more sensational effect. Well, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, it, it's it's hard to resist uh, connecting that very colorful and electric 
uh, kind of work with um, the spirit of Mardi Gras that we just came through. So I'm I'm wondering where the idea for that kind of work came from. And I I don't know if you saw my newsletter, but I kind of uh, posited that, okay, was this kind of from your psychedelic 60s experiences or – simply wanting to see the color jump off the wall or um, something to do with your background in colorful New Orleans. To tell me a little bit about where it comes from. You know, I'm, I'm, I can't say for sure, but I think it's probably, you know, a combination of all those things and maybe more. But, you know, what consciously I thought was, uh, you know, because, yes, I, we did have black light posters when I was a kid, and we even had a room with black lights in it that we, you know, but those posters generally um, dealt with, um, you know, psychedelic drugs or rock and roll or, you know, these more kind of, uh, say, popular culture ideas. And I, uh, But, you know, the colors are ha- have their own thing. They're very, um, you know, effective. They're, they're sort of mesmerizing. So I thought, uh, wow, why hasn't anyone actually made, like, what's known as high art or, you know, abstraction or, you know, the type of abstraction that's associated with what people call high art and combine that with this, say, you know, quote-unquote lower form, which is, you know, black light colors and, you know, how come that's never been done? And I just thought it should be done, so I did it. <laughs> um, so so let's, let's, let's track back before that and, and, and figure out, um, uh, you know, uh, some of the antecedents and, and – uh, when you first let's let's go back to the beginning when you first started working as a young girl and and you started to develop your um, ideas tell me the kind of work that you started with because I I remember you as a ceramic artist and um, my sister actually started as a ceramic artist and then evolved yeah. into painting and mm-hmm. and arts administration which she's done as a her day job for quite a long time so. I'm kind of curious about the evolution. So uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, the beginnings and then how you developed. Well, you know, I grew up in a household that was, you know, full of artists and creativity. And then at school, I actually, my very first thing I did was enameling, and, um, you know, which is similar to ceramics and in that involves uh, baking things in kilns. And uh, I was fascinated how... If you kind of make the mistake of overbaking your enamel thing, the, the colors will kind of run all over the place and 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 do their own thing. And um, and then I got involved with ceramics and did a lot of raku pottery with Laurie Lockwood as my teacher. And I, uh, I got very involved with that for several years. And you know we there was we frequently would stay late after school into the night. You know firing up. Um, pots and raku kilns and it was just a great ritual of making and friendship and um and then somehow later i migrated into painting and drawing and uh that 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 has uh, sustained me more uh, let, let, let's term. let's uh, dig into that somehow <clears throat> because that's a that's a pretty big evolution so you know let's go into that a little bit more is that something that evolved out of your education out of seeing the work of other artists, um, out of your own sort of experimentation, or all of the above? Well, my mother's boyfriend at the time, Gene Seidenberg, uh, was a painter. Oh, by the way, we and, should mention uh, you. He and my mom took me to Houston to see a Cezanne show, a late Cezanne show. And, um, you know, I knew that this was some very important art, and so I made an extra effort to look very hard, and, and I just became, I don't know, it just sort of, 
caught fire in me that, you know, I wanted to paint. And so then I began to, you know, learn to draw. And, you know, because in ceramics, you don't need to draw. There's no drawing involved, presumably. Um, but then I, you know, just sort of, I guess, migrated over to the two dimensions and started drawing and experimenting with paints and, uh, uh, you know, just began by painting members of my family or self-portraits, still lives, the typical um, things that painters start with. And, you know, and, and it's, uh, I don't know, I think painting is uh, perhaps a slower evolution than ceramics, and for me it was anyway, and uh, it presented challenges that um, kept me interested over the years, and it's just kind of evolved from there, and it's, I still love painting. <laughs> It's uh, it's interesting to go from three dimension to two dimension because in a way one would think that it would go the other way that you would want to come off the wall and in a sense with this work that you've just done the um, I don't know what to call it really give give me a a, a simple category for the for the um, black light work simple category well I think it bridges categories because it's you know to me the paintings look like almost like they're screen projections, so they look like they're lit from behind. So it, it, they reference media arts, uh, and yet it's paint. And so, um, you know, it's, it's painting for sure, but maybe painting transformed or painting seen uh, another way. Oh, that's interesting. So, and, and I like the, the reference to media because that, of course, is such a dominant um, aspect of all of our lives now, whereas some of us may have dabbled in the media one way or another. Now, almost every single person in the universe um, is is hooked up online and to the internet, and we're dealing with media every day. So, to to bring that into your work or to um, shape your work in a way that has that effect is is interesting in the sense that it relates to the way the world is changing. Yeah, I mean, essentially, like, instead of painting the way a flower looks, you know, by, by uh, you know, creating the effect of, like, how light reflects off a flower, I'm trying to emulate or to sort of mimic how a screen looks and, and replicate the experience of looking at, at a lit screen um, in painting. So, you know, for, for those of you out in the audience who are, are trying to get your arms around what Jacqueline is talking about, um, I, I really, I, I just want to, I'm going to say this a couple times as we talk because I, I, I think it's important and, and it would be interesting, especially if you have kids, to go to the Contemporary Arts Center and see this work because it, it really is not like anything else that you've ever seen hanging on the walls of a museum or an art center or a gallery. Um, it's, it's different. It really does reach out off the wall and kind of grab you with, with, the, with the light that she's talking about. So um, let me just keep saying, you know, Contemporary Arts Center through February 28th, and of course you can get their hours online. Um, they have terrific hours. And by the way, I mean, the whole CAC has really popped up. This is their 40th anniversary, so all kinds of exciting things coming up. Um, but one of my favorite new things at the CAC, I just have to mention this, and Jacqueline, maybe you've been in there, but that new little bookstore called The Stacks? Yes. Oh, my goodness. That is one of the best. Wonderful. Isn't it? It's one of the best uh, arts Bookstores. So, if you have a child, if you ever, if you personally are interested in the arts and you want to learn more, this is a great place to do it. 
Um, the selection is incredible. And then the woman who runs it is very knowledgeable, so she can really help you find stuff. I just had to get that little promo in there because I, I'm just floored by how terrific that little store is. Um, so so back to t- tell me about some of the other artists who are part of your life and your world and and how they relate to your work. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear you know, when, when people who are doing uh, a variety of different kinds of media, and again, so many artists now are experimenting with new ways of communicating through their art, what is their take? What is their reaction? How does it affect them? You mean what I'm doing? Yeah. Um, you know, when I first showed, I did the first batch of blacklight paintings I did was in 2005, and it's an idea that I'd had already for art 15 years, and I finally got around to doing it, and uh you know, it, I, it was very, uh, it, it caused I, quite, uh, quite the reaction that I wanted, which was, you know, wow. <laughs> and uh, so it, it was an exciting time for me when I first developed that work um, because, uh, you know, I think it, uh, it got, you know, even a more enthusiastic response than I, than I ever had. And, and so I've continued to make uh, sort of, to, you know, I, I have like more than one way of working always going. Like I have blacklight paintings that I do, and then I have other paintings that are, you know, painted in, in normal conditions. And uh, it keeps things interesting for me to be able to sort of go, go back and forth between them. But about, you know, artists and artist friends, you know, I have like you know, Rachel Harrison, Charlene Von Heil, Blake Rain, and we love to visit each other's studios and. Um, you know, it's part of uh, it's part of the work that you have friends by to check out what you're doing, talk about it, you know, ask questions about it, and just talk about general conditions. You know, what is the state of the image? How do we reflect that in painting? How do we reflect that in sculpture? You know, that's a, a very interesting point, and I think a lot of artists who are starting out don't necessarily um, expose themselves that way to themselves that way to um, uh, friends and associates and other artists to to check in and see what they're doing and comment on it. I think a lot of people tend to, especially creators, work in isolation. And so I, I think that's a really good advice. And maybe we can explore the whole idea of what advice you would give to young artists or just artists of any age. So many artists actually start um, making art later in their lives when they've gone through, you know, some of the expected things they thought they would do and, and maybe not found them satisfying, and next thing you know, they're making art. So w- tell me what you would advise a, an emerging, let's say, artist of any age um, to do uh, in developing their work. And, and by the way, I, I, I don't know if I, um, if you knew this, but Tanner was just at, Bob Tannen, my husband, who I refer to frequently in this show, um, has uh, been for the past month at the Rauschenberg um, residency in Florida, mm-hmm. surrounded by other artists working. I think it's the first time he's ever worked, you know, in a studio, first of all, all day, every day for a consistent period of time. He always has a day job that interferes a lot. But secondly, the collaboration with the other artists, I think, has been incredible for him. So I hear that point. What what other important things would you say have helped shape your work? Well, I think what you're mentioning about, like, hooking up with other artists is very important. And, and you know, I taught for many years, and really I only had two pieces of solid advice for them. And the first was find a community, find a community of other artists, people who share your interests, people whose work that you like. Uh, talk to them. You know, this, this will sustain you as an artist because especially for painters, uh, you, you know, at least I do, I work, you know, in very solitary conditions. So I need to 
like, find another way to, to sort of socialize my practice. And uh, the other piece of advice is customize your materials. Don't just get your materials from an art store. Uh, you know, find other interesting tools to work with that maybe you feel, um, like, for instance, if you ever worked in construction, you might want to use, like, certain kinds of, like, sheet rocking tools to make your paintings. But, but don't just get your, art, your materials at an art store because if you do, your paintings will look like other people's paintings. Like, the way to make, get your paintings to look unique is to introduce new materials, new tools, new practices into how you make them. That's great advice. I love that. That really makes a lot of sense. What are some of the other artists, um, uh, in, in let's say, working in New, York, New Orleans or New York, um, that you would like to highlight as people that you think we should explore? And, and let's um, kind of pinpoint their names and maybe folks out there take some notes and go check them out online. In addition to checking out Jacqueline's work, Jacqueline, I assume you have a website, yeah? You know, I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. I took it down because I I just was never any good at updating it, and uh, so I took I took it down because it was always like things were upside down or sideways, and you know were dated wrong. It was just too complicated for me to maintain. Oh, uh, but your gallery, Green Naftali, maybe you're on their website, right? Yes, they have uh, you know they have pictures of work going back many years on their website. Yes. So who are some of the other artists that you would call out as people that um, you you find interesting and why? And and let's kind of give people some ideas of folks that they can check into. Oh, there's so many. Uh, You know, start with my friends like uh, Charlene Van Heil, Laura Owens, Blake Rain. Don't do it so fast. Don't do it so fast. Hmm? Don't do it so Um, fast. Let's give people a chance to write it down. Charlene Van Heil, who's a painter. Uh, She's a very close friend of mine. You know, another painter, Laura Owens, who's in L.A., uh, really wonderful, brilliant artist. And then uh, Blake Rain, also a painter, but also he's not a painter in the tradition. He uses painting in his art more than he is a painter, per se. How do you spell his last name? Uh, R-A-Y-N-E. Okay. And then there's Peter Schoolworth, uh, who's also a painter, but uh, very interesting the way he devises his subjects, which he then commits to painting, uh, using a lot of uh, photography and, um, you know, computer, like Photoshop. He makes compositions in Photoshop, which then become paintings. It's a rather complicated process. It's it's interesting that you mentioned Photoshop because there's been a workshop going on at Clark High School right now with some of the students working with Photoshop and looking at exploring ways to use that. So, again, that's a new media that you don't just pick up at the store. Yes, you can pick it up online, but you have to play with it. Yeah, it's, again, like it's it's really a challenge, but it's exciting to – to identify what are more contemporary tools in image making and find a way to sort of bring them into your practice, whether it's in developing like preliminary work to painting per se or using that actually to make paintings more directly. So um, that is, you know, the thing about painting is that it it just seems to be able to absorb everything, so, um, and which helps it to, uh, evolve and continue to evolve and remain vital over time. That's uh, so interesting, too. And, you know, another thing that I think is important about your work, uh, as distinguished from some artists, um, I, I'm always concerned about the artists who kind of fall into a rut and they seem to be selling well with one idea, so they just keep doing it. 
because the market demands it. And I don't think that you've done that. I think that, again, you know, moving into the black light paintings, for example, and, and in other um, movements that you've made in your work, you've, you've really tried to explore new things. And I know that's harder to do than to just keep churning out something that people want. But I, I would say that's a really important lesson for artists also, no? Wait, for me, it's, it's, it's really, I have no other way of going about it because I get bored with something that I already know how to do. Like, I feel like I always need to be learning something. I always have to be, like, climbing a learning curve to keep me interested. And so, you know, I, I don't start with a preconceived conception of how the painting is going to look. It's something that gets built and, construct, and constructed over time. And I might be working on maybe 10 paintings at the same time. Wow. I'll have new ideas that are flowing through all the paintings. And maybe all those paintings get thrown away, but then I extract, like, a certain knowledge of how, how to go about doing what it is that I sense I feel I need to see. Well, that's I, I'm actually amazed to hear that you're doing so many different paintings at the same time. Is that Do you think that's characteristic of many artists, that they're working on a lot of different pieces simultaneously? I think some do, some don't. It's, you know, it, it's neither one nor the other is superior to, to the other. It's just, you know, how, it, how, how one develops one's own uh, methods of working and how does one address one's, you know, own attention span perhaps or, uh, like, how to keep oneself entertained and having fun or, you know, motivate, how to keep your motivation up. And um, I, I, I sort of, I also work in layers, so I, and I work in oil, so I'll start a painting and then I need to let it dry before I do something else to it, so then I have to, you know, rather than sit around for two weeks, so I just start a new painting. And so then I tend to get, like, maybe eight, ten paintings going at once, and I'll just sort of randomly work on them until something begins to emerge. And it's just a very, it's a kind of a slow process at first. And then when, once I get a sense of what I want to do, then I can just start working very quickly and things happen fast and, and I get all this momentum and uh, I feel like I, I know what to do, I know when to do it and so on and so forth. So um, one last question on your arts and then I'm going to uh, get personal for just a minute. So, um, you know, everybody's always kind of fascinated by the trends in art and that's something that really more the art critics and the writers dwell on than the people who are actually making art. Um, but there, there do tend to emerge certain trends in the work and, and characteristics of a time frame that you're working within. Um, if you were to, <clears throat> excuse me, if you were to pinpoint currently what the trends that you see, because I'm sure you go to see a lot of other people's work, um, not only in New York but elsewhere, uh, give me give me a sense of wh where you see art going right now. Well, I think there's this issue of the democratization of, uh, of the image maker. Everybody is now an image maker uh, on a daily basis. We all have our cell phones. We take pictures with them. We Instagram. We use social media, et cetera. So images have become a vital component of, uh, of daily communication. And that's everything from the photograph to the emoticon. And so I think this is a very a seismic shift in culture. And, but, you know, it's one that poses many questions. And um, I think, you know, it's, I see myself as an artist, as someone who needs to sort of sift through this and process it somehow in painting. Huh, interesting. 
Okay, so now, Jacqueline, we have just a few minutes late uh, left before I move on to my next guest. Um, I can't help, I can't resist talking to you about your incredible son who um, <laughs> started out as something of a um, monkey as a kid, just bouncing <laughs> off the walls and the sofas and the floors. He was so acrobatic. And um, that has been channeled into um, a fairly remarkable choice of, of athletic activity, uh, namely fencing. And he's yes. so good at it that you actually have wound up going to big meets all over the globe. I'm fascinated yes. to hear, you know, how, how did that evolve and, and how do you, do you support that? And, and what is your um, – what's the effect of dealing with a, a, a very active – son with a very um, active interest on your life. I mean, this is a thing that parents grapple with in general, but in, in addition, when you, you are as deeply engaged in creative activity as you are on the one hand, and yet being a mom on the other, I'm fascinated to know how you kind of, you know, balance those two out. Well, it's, I'm very busy. <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, I'm a sports mom, and I didn't set out to be. It just turned out that way. Uh, you know, we, we, my son wanted to take a fencing class, so we took a fencing. I thought we were just taking a fencing class. Little did I know that, um, that I had just met the most ambitious woman I've ever met, who's his coach, who's uh, uh, Coach Nelia, who is, uh, was on the Russian team. She's an Olympic fencer, and she's a fantastic, dedicated person, and she's Russian, so she's, you know, very rigorous in her training. And before we knew it, we were doing small local tournaments, and then we were traveling within the U.S., and, you know, this Monday we just got back from Paris where we did a big tournament. And the thing about fencing that's fascinating, you know, they call it physical chess. So it's a very strategic sport, huh. but, of course, it's also very athletic. Jack, my son, always loved chess. But he has trouble sitting still for a chess game. So it just seemed like the natural thing for him. And he's really excelled at this. And it's, you know, he has a team. We travel together. It's sort of, a, we're sort of a tribe. You know, we go to these different cities and do tournaments and we're all good friends. And, um, it's been, it's been a wonderful kind of, um, way for me to spend time with my son and, uh, also have social time with other parents who have maybe coming from different kinds of careers. Uh, meeting under this one uh, common interest of this sport, which is, um, you know, if one gets into it, you just get obsessed with it. And it's a very beautiful sport. It's a very polite sport. It's a very diverse sport. Uh, there's kids from every ethnic background in this sport. And uh, it's just uh, you, have, you have African-American fencers? Lots of them, yes. No kidding. That's fascinating. I think the number five fencer in the country in Jack's age category is African-American. Wow. Where's he from? He's somewhere like uh, Jersey or Westchester. Huh. Well, <laughs> so where does that go? Uh, uh, what's, what's the outcome? What, does, does Jack become a, f a fencing Olympic competitor? Or is it, how does it affect the rest of his life? How, how does he uh, interpret what he learns from fence in, his, in the rest of his life? Well, it's, you know, he's very busy. He, he practices four times a week plus tournaments, perhaps wow. twice a month. So, but the, the thing, you know, so he's very active, as you mentioned, but through this sport, he's really learned how to concentrate his energies, discipline his body, discipline his emotion, because he's a very passionate, very emotional kid, and in fencing, it's very mental, so you have to sort of stay calm, um, 
you know, keep anger at bay, keep frustration at bay. And so in terms of, like, life lessons and character development, it's, it's had an enormous effect on him. And plus it's given him a lot of confidence, and, and it's fun. <laughs> and what about for you? What's the effect it's on you? It's fun for me. I mean, it's very anxiety-ridden sometimes because, you know, it's your kid competing. You want them to do well, but they don't always do well. Some days they fence really well. Some days they fence really bad. So, um, but it's, uh, I, again, it's, uh, it's a very, you know, I'd rather him be doing this than playing a video game, to tell you the truth. And it go. gets us out in the world. <laughs> it gets us meeting a lot of other people. It brings us to other cities. So it's been fantastic for me. And he, and, and part of his training, if I recall, you've said that um, he had he studied dance for a while as a way of uh, encouraging his um, physical development. Well, he is studying dance at school. I mean, he's not doing that specifically uh, in his fencing training. But the fascinating thing about fencing is that it was developed at the same time as ballet. You know, in the court of Louis the Fourteenth. And so it's very profoundly linked historically to ballet. And the, the, all the moves and actions are very balletic. Um, so it's a sport that's associated with violence, but it's actually much closer to ballet. Okay. Jacqueline, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've covered a lot of territory with you. I, I, we didn't mention in the yeah. whole show yet that your mother is Mia Faget. Yes, um, one of the most creative jewelers, <laughs> of course, in the region and nationally. And so it's not surprising at all that um, you and your son would turn out to be uh, so creative and, and your brothers as well. And so um, it's, it's, you know, it's a pleasure to know you and, and have uh, you as a friend. And, and I've enjoyed uh, doing a little bit of interview and delving into things that we don't actually usually talk about. Well, thank you, Jean. It's been wonderful. I love you, too, and it's been wonderful talk to you, talking to you. And my mother's a genius, so just need to point that out. <laughs> and by the way, I forgot to mention that you are one of this year's sweethearts, right? Yeah. And the sweetheart yes. ball is coming up on, what, February 27th, is it? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not able to make it down. I, oh, I have a very tight deadline in the end of February, pity. but... Uh, um, it's a I great think my honor. My mother's probably going to be receiving the award for me. Okay. Well, the Sweethearts Bowl is, is a kick. It's a lot of fun. Everybody, sign up for it. Check it out on the, the Contemporary Arts Center's line. Go see Jacqueline's show before it comes down. What could be more fun than Blacklight? And for kids to see it, I really want you, uh, uh, family folks out there with creative kids, to go see Jacqueline Humphrey's show at the Contemporary Arts Center between now and February 28th. It All is right. For kids, yes. I am thrilled to have had you and uh, look forward to your next visit. Are you coming Thank home you, for Jean. Easter? Send my love to Tannen. I will. Thank you. Uh, okay, right. bye-bye. Jacqueline Humphreys. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. And so this is just an all-around creative day because we follow right behind um, Jacqueline uh, with a woman I have in my uh, studio who we've actually met before. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, I realized that when you came in, mm-hmm. even though I wasn't sure exactly who you were. I know that we, I don't remember the circumstances, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I do know that uh, Valerie Francis is somebody who is, again, part of the creative mix of New Orleans. She uh, she has so multi-talented and had does so many different things with her career in music, in singing, and I'm going to um, kind of catch up with her background. Um, but again, the most important thing I want you all to know is that they, there's just this incredible series this music thing is so fully developed there's just so much going on with it It, it, it's called um let's see if i can get this uh, expression exactly right maybe you want to uh, say it so that i don't mess it up prelude 
to Easter, mm -hmm. right? And um, this is a series of performances on Thursday nights at 6 o'clock at St. Mary's Catholic Church, which is at 1100 Charter Street. And it's uh, their benefit. So, you know, what money you're putting into it is, is going to be to the benefit of for food and clothing and other needs of, of people in the city that um, Father Maestri, who mm -hmm. puts this together, is serving um, through um, his Catholic Church. And, mm -hmm. and I, I just I looked at the program and I was just floored by it. So, <laughs> Valerie, let's start there. Let's just start with the program. Mm -hmm. um, uh, tonight is the first night at six o'clock. And um, then it goes on uh, from all Thursdays between now through Lent, mm -hmm. through, through now, uh, through Easter. And so um, tell me a little bit about how this um, uh, came about. And I know um, uh, uh, Reverend uh, Maestri is going to join us in just a couple of minutes, so we'll get a little bit more from him. Mm -hmm. But And also how you came to be involved with it. Well, um, actually, I spoke with um, Amy Frimmer, and she told me about this um, wonderful program. And uh, she put me in touch with Father Maestri, and uh, I'm just so happy to be a part of it. You know, this morning's uh, daily word was, bless the world through your thoughts, words, and actions. And uh, this is just such a wonderful opportunity to do that um, by um, feeding into Father Maestri's um, vision for the Bishop Perry Center. And uh, we can give share our talents um, to help the Bishop Perry Center in its efforts to help homeless families um, throughout the city. And um, we're also going to be uh, giving, uh, well, paying homage to uh, Leontine Price. Her birthday was on yesterday. She turned 87 years old. Happy birthday, Leontine. Well, Miss Price, I better not say Leontine, Miss Price. <laughs> And uh, we're going to be um, putting on different, uh, we're singing various, I'll, I'll be singing various um, arias and duets with um, uh, a colleague of mine um, from Southern University, Richard Hobson, and who's also a Met sing singer. Um, also a very good friend of mine, uh, Troy Populus, and a colleague of mine from Nichols State University, um, Kenny Klaus, and we'll also have the Symphonia um, organization, Phi Mu Alpha from Nickel State, who will be joining us. Um, also, our accompanist, uh, pianist for the evening, will be uh, none other than my friend and colleague, Wilfred Delphin, and he just uh, received the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, with Gambit, so we're really proud of him. Um, The program will, um, as you know, Leontine Price was a Verdi and, uh, Verdian and Puccinian, if you will, um, singer and, well, her heroine. And, uh, the program will consist of, um, arias and duets from Aida and, uh, La Forza del Destino, as well as. Aida's an opera. What was the second one? La Forza del Destino. I'm not familiar with that mm -hmm. one. Is that an opera? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Who was the, uh, who was the composer? Verdi. Verdi, Verdi also. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, uh, we're also going to do, um, a scene from Tosca and, uh, Don Carlo and Porgy and Bess. And then the second half will highlight, um, 
composers of New Orleans, uh, to include Roger Dickerson and Ellis Marcellus and also Betty Jackson King. There is something for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, something we're for talking everybody. the major classical Mm-hmm. Um, opera composers, Verdi has to be one of the more challenging mm-hmm. um, composers because it's very powerful stuff. Very, very powerful. <laughs> you know, anybody yeah. who I, I was I was not brought up with opera in my household mm-hmm. in the Bronx. I, mm-hmm. I promise you. But um, once exposed to it, I, I'm not somebody who you know follows every single opera and all the um, the stories in them. But I've always been blown away by the power. Of the music, of the vocalists, of the of the uh, stage sets, the whole thing, and um, Father Maestri has joined us now, so we can actually um, get from him mm-hmm. um, a little bit of the background of how this all started. Because I, I was saying, I don't know if you heard uh, Father, but um, earlier in the show, I was commenting on how incredibly um, full and rich um, this looks like. We have some static on the line. Um, uh, how full and rich uh, this whole program is. It's just, it's, I, I mean, I would expect to see it, you know, coming out of the symphony orchestra mm-hmm. or, the, or the opera, and here it is coming out of a, a community church mm-hmm. and, uh, in a, and advancing what you're trying to accomplish in helping people throughout the city who are homeless. So um, how, did, how did this get started? How did you come about doing this? Uh, this is our third year, uh, Ms. Nathan, and... Um the uh what we've tried to do is to have a uh concert series during Lent uh for the six uh Thursdays of Lent leading up to Holy Week. Uh yesterday of course was Ash Wednesday and so today is the first uh, Thursday. And uh we wanted to uh provide uh various kinds of music uh, for the uh for the community. Uh, there is no charge to come if people wish to uh, make a contribution to the center, the Bishop Perry Center, not to me or to anybody else here. Uh, that would be that that would be uh, most appreciated. But the most important thing is we wanted to make sure that the community could come. And uh, I have always rejected the idea of uh, an entrance fee or some kind of uh, money charge to come in because we have a number of people in our community that uh, uh, are on uh, fixed incomes because we have a number of elderly that come to the center, et cetera. And then what you're going to do is you're going to exclude them and uh, because they can't afford it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we've, we've, we've never done that. And uh, the people uh, in the community and around the city have been most generous uh, to the center, and we're most appreciative. And I thank you for your uh, your comments. So, so really, uh, the people of the city have helped you present this um, with their donations. Those who can afford it, and that sort of carries you through being able to present these and and, and invite anybody to come. I, I really totally appreciate that uh, that idea mm-hmm. of making it available. And you know, some cities have been really effective in in being able to secure public financing for admission to museums and and other cultural venues. And it's something that 
you know, I hold as a mission that um, we we haven't achieved here yet, but I know other people. I know Susan Taylor at, at the New Orleans Museum of Art is working towards this, and others. Mm-hmm. So um, you've set the standard by by what what you've done. But but let me go back to the the programming itself again. is so rich. Yes, ma'am. And and um, Valerie was giving me a little bit of the rundown for this evening's show. Yes. And you yes. know, you have everything from again high operatic music to gospel to um, uh, composers from New Orleans. I mean, that's right right there. If I didn't go any further than that, that's pretty extraordinary. And then you have all these other Thursday night programs. So uh, who puts all of this together? Do you do that? Uh, I do it uh, in concert with uh, Rosemary James mm-hmm. and her husband, uh, Joe DeSalvo. And um, we try to get a variety because there's some people who, who don't like this and don't like that, love this, whatever. So that's what we try to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's sort of like uh, it's sort of like when you go to uh, Piccadilly, uh, you pick this and you pick that. You know, and uh, people love a buffet, these, a musical these, buffet. Uh, mm-hmm. These um, people have been so uh, these uh, artists, uh, artists have been so generous. Uh, in uh, working uh, with the center and in, um, frankly, uh, donating their time and talent uh, so that the center uh, here down in the Marigny can continue. And it's uh, something that has been uh, remarkable uh, for us. And I thank Rosemary James and her husband, Joe DeSalvo, for their uh, extraordinary work, Mm -hmm. along with a whole host of other people who uh, have been there. And we've been able to do it because we happen to be in a situation where we have a venue that uh, we can open and allow people to come, etc. And, you know, another thing that um, I've noticed in the program is that your performers, these are people who have played Carnegie Hall in New York. They play with the Louisiana Philharmonic. Um, they've played in, in, with the Dallas Symphony. And it goes on and on. The credits are, again, amazing. So you just have people that um, are, are exceptional talents. So to add to the program content, to add to the mission of the people you're trying to serve, and then the, the, the star power of your, <laughs> of your um, performers that you have in it is just all, I have to say, quite remarkable. And um, I really hope people are going to come out and, and hear some of the music. You know, we're going to take just a moment, uh, uh, Father, if you don't mind, and I'm, I'm going to play... Sure. A little piece of music that um, Valerie was kind enough to um, send our way, and I believe oh, the name of this piece is called Ride Up in the Chariot. So I'm going to assume spiritual. that this is a gospel. That's a Negro spiritual. A, ne- a Negro spiritual.
this, ladies and gentlemen, that powerful voice that you were just hearing, that's coming from the same soft-spoken woman sitting to my right here in the studio who, uh, you know, it's always shocking to see the difference between a person in real life and their performing persona. And your performing persona is obviously, again, extremely uh, robust, powerful, beautiful. Thank you and, very and, much. And you're Thank sitting you. here as such a, a gentle soul in my <laughs> presence. It's it's a quite a contrast. And and Father, again, um, you know, with the the level of production work that's gone into this on your part, on Rosemary and Joe's part, um, but all again to serve um, people who others treat as outcasts. Mm-hmm. Some treat that's as right. outcasts, and so much of our political a rhetoric today in the country is so mean-spirited and and condemning. Um, and I understand, you know, everybody talks about the anger that underlies it and, and this, you know, this upheaval in our economy that's putting people out of work and, and not offering jobs to the young uh, who are not trained for this changing economy. I, I'm so sensitive to that. And yet at the same time, we just have to have love in our hearts mm-hmm. for all or else we cannot bring ourselves to go forward. So I go with well, some of the I candidates who have uh, been I, speaking I, I, positively. I think, uh, I think, Ms. Nathan, that we have become very comfortable with the battleground and haven't found leaders to push us to the common ground. Uh, and um, that doesn't serve anyone. Mm-hmm. It, um, it divides it makes us angry, it separates us, and it's very destructive. It's very destructive. We need voices that invite us uh, to the common ground of our common humanity. Uh, and I don't care what your religion is or what your gender is and all of this other sort of stuff. We're human beings, and uh, I think that's very important. And um, the point that you made... Uh, far better than I just did, is the ability to do that. Well, actually, I would uh, say that you made the point more beautifully. I love that um, we've become too comfortable with the battleground and not the common ground. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that um, I've been a a junkie of the um, political talk shows because initially it was just theater. I was just sitting with my jaw dropped, listening to the things that were coming out of the mouths of some of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it just became so totally dispiriting that um, that was being endorsed uh, by too many people. And um, right now I'm hoping things have a way of swinging, that pendulum swings. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I really hope that this the pendulum is going to swing a, away from this really vitriolic, condemning, rhetoric that we're hearing nationally to uh, a more giving and supportive. And and Kasich, I think, is the main candidate right now who has been, um, you know, making that point uh, on the Republican side. And I think both uh, on the Democratic side, both Hillary and and, um, Bernie, with all their bombastic Mm -hmm. kind of (laughs) rhetoric, are trying to make that point. So hopefully there's going to be a swing of the pendulum and we're going to come back to um, the spirit that underlies this program that you're putting on right now, which is is, yes, is helping people, you know, um, many, I, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that you may be comfortable in your world this moment. 
things can fall apart tomorrow. You can lose that corporate job. You can lose that construction job. You can lose that job on the oil rigs. Right now, I suspect we're losing a lot of people in in our state are are becoming unemployed because of the um, oil industry crash. And then those folks lose their homes. And next thing you know, they or you or I can be homeless. So Mm -hmm. I... I'm very uh, attuned to what you're trying to do with your program. Well, we appreciate. I, I really appreciate you, and I've appreciated your uh, journalistic professionalism uh, over the years. And I think that we often forget that life is quite fragile, mm-hmm. and uh, we're stronger together than we are alone. That's right. Uh, Father, uh, if I might just, uh, I want to make sure that we, you know, my, my purpose is obviously uh, at the moment with this with this um, presentation today on this show to encourage people to uh, come out to the um, to the program. So can you maybe highlight for me what are a couple of um, the things that you have coming up in other programs besides tonight's that you'd like to call attention to? I, I don't know if you have your program in front of you. So I do. Okay. And I have, uh, uh, of course, uh, Miss Valerie uh, Francis, and uh, then uh, we're going to have Mr. Troy Popolis, and then Richard Hobson, and uh, Wilford Defferplan, and uh, they're going to be doing various kinds of music and so on. Uh, uh, we're going to have a program on, um, which I think may appeal to a lot of people, Summertime, and Beth, uh, you and my woman now, uh, <laughs> Porgy and Beth, a tribute to George Gershwin. And we have uh, uh, other programs that are, that are coming up. And uh, I think that um, if people come, I think they'll be incredibly uh, pleased. And as I say, we don't have a charge. Everyone is welcome. Mm-hmm. And we move on from there because we want to uh, serve the uh, uh, the people of the community. And last uh, last um, economic year, which was from uh, June uh, July 1st to June 30th of this year, we have increased our services to 15,000 people. Oh my goodness! Are you telling me that there are 15,000 people? Either yes, homeless ma'am. or of substantial need in the city of New Orleans. Yes, ma'am. They come, well, not just they fifteen thousand. That's how many you've served. So there are more than that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's 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 the number. That's that's what wow. we that's what we serve. Wow, that's wow. Uh, that's that's an incredible achievement, mm-hmm. uh, and and something that is. Um, uh, just th- thank you, thank you so much for doing that, Father. Hello, I'm going to turn to thank you and thank you for allowing us the opportunity to talk about our program uh, beginning tonight. Mm-hmm. I thank appreciate very it very much. much. Six o'clock at St. Mary's Church, and I'm going to come back to that and close out with that. But for a few minutes, if you don't mind, I'm going to turn to Valerie because um, I sure. am a, a, a big focus of all of my shows. Um, is is the creative um, abilities of people in our city, and um, I look to how we can encourage them and others uh, like them to pursue their creative talents. So, Valerie, I want to hear a little bit about. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you, Father. So, mm-hmm. thank you very much, and thank you, uh, uh, Miss Francis. Well, uh, very thank much you for, for the maestro. I appreciate it. Thank you so and much. And I'll see you tonight. Okay.
Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. Bye-bye, Father. Bye-bye, ma'am. So, 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 Valerie, um, tell me again, I don't know if you were listening to the interview I did with Jacqueline, but I I found it fascinating. Mm -hmm. I learned so much. She's a longtime friend, but she was somebody who... um, Mm-hmm. I, I uh, I'm so bad about uh, handling that switchboard. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not one of my talents. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, tell me about how you, how you got started. How did you discover your talent, and and what made you pursue it and develop it to the level you have, which is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not just singing at home in the shower. <laughs> you're not just singing in, in your nearby church. You're not just mm-hmm. singing at the jazz fest. You're singing all over the world. Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me how this all started. Oh boy, this is a a story I get to tell all the all of the time. Um, I was actually a very very shy singer as a child. Um, I sang in my uh, grandfather's church. My dad is a um, was a music major at Dillard University, um, but he uh, wound up changing his major and he went on into um, into education um, administration. And he actually was the um, first principal, um, African-American junior high school principal to be hired in, in New Orleans. He was the principal at uh, Colton um, Junior High School for many years. And um, he kind of passed that down. My, great, my grandfather um, on both sides, my mom, my mom's dad and my dad's dad, all of them were in music. And um, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I didn't think it was going to be me. Everybody thought it was going to be my sister, and my sister's a nurse. So, I, hello. I just started singing in church, and I was very, very, uh, very, very shy. You could barely hear me above a whisper. Um, I went on to 35. I studied with um, Patricia Seals, another gem here in the city. And, again, at 35, I was in the background. I wasn't in the concert choir until my, I think my last year. And, uh, went on to Dillard University and studied with S. Carver Davenport there. And, uh, he saw that I had a talent and encouraged me to change my major because I was majoring in, in biology. <laughs> There's always some mentor in yeah. our, in our, our history that is so critical mm-hmm. to our future. I, mm-hmm. I think that every mentor out there should appreciate mm-hmm. the role that they play Major in advancing roles. somebody. And so I, that's why I got my, um, at Dillard is where I got my um, love and um, outside of church, um, in major intro- introduction into Negro spiritual literature. And then I went on to um, UNO where I studied with Dr. Uh, Raquel Cortina, and uh, both she and Mr. Davenport are still very um, close to me, and Dr. Cortina does a lot of coaching coaching with me, I mean, to date. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> and uh, she introduced me to opera, and uh, when I got to her at, at UNO, she heard my voice, and I tell everybody the story. She told me that my voice was like in a little box that wanted to get out, and I said, okay, I've been singing all over with Dilla University. What are you talking about? And she told me, yeah, you you have a voice, and I'm going to get the rest of it out. And she did. Oh, and love she that did. Story. Yeah. And um, from there, she's I mean, she's been such a great um, mentor in my life. And um, actually, when I left um, UNO, um, 
graduated with my master's in 87, um, I wanted to go to Juilliard. And um, she said, Val, I don't know if Juilliard's for you, but she said, if you want to go and try, go on. Well, I went, and I sang there, and I sang well. Um, but obviously, uh, Juilliard wasn't for me. Um, and uh, Why I can't, do you say that? I don't know. I, I, didn't, um, I didn't get in. I didn't get any oh, response okay. from them. Um, and it was interesting because the person, the pianist that played for me, for that audition was with New York City Opera. He was uh, one of the, um, he was a musical director with New York City Opera at that time. And he said, you know, Val, you know, if you go to Juilliard right now for a doctorate degree, it's going to be a whole lot of paperwork, you know, Mm. and you really need to be singing. Mm. And he actually wanted me to stay there, but I didn't have the funds to stay in the city. It's hard. Yeah, so I said, well, it wasn't for me. So I came back and talked to Dr. Cortina and she said, Val, I have somebody I want you to meet um, in Oklahoma. And it was Thomas Carey, and his famous uh, opera singer. And his wife was um, also world-renowned, Carol Bryce. And um, I didn't get a chance to meet her. She passed before I uh, went to OU, the University of Oklahoma at Norman. And uh, he heard me and offered me a full ride. All I had to do was take my car and drive to OU. I mean, full ride. He took care of everything. He took care of everything. Wow. I was the first to get the um, Carol Bryce Carey Scholarship. Wow. And, um, I mean, all I had to do was come. And I remember in one of my lessons, uh, God always has a purpose for you, you know. In one of my lessons, I said, you know, I was trying to go to Juilliard. And I tell my students this all the time. He said, you were. I just turned down a job at Juilliard. <laughs> uh-huh. right. And I said, "What?" And you know, and to, it, it's it's very difficult to um, go from one um, level to the next, um, and it's very um, to ha- to have the um, same type of teacher or the person that's going to keep you on the same vocal level um, as far as technique wise. And I was blessed to have three teachers that did that, and um, through Mr. Carey. And Dr. Cortina, and Escarva Davenport, and Patricia Seals, and the list goes on and on. And my church, you know, um, affiliations, the Lord really blessed me. And um, I'm just very grateful to be where I am, and I'm very happy to pass everything down to my daughter, who's now at um, Imani Sarai Francis, who is now at um, NOCA. And she's graduating this year, and she's been traveling and auditioning. So, you know, giving a shout out to Noka as well. So I'm getting a shout out as uh, we speak. <laughs> <laughs> he hates it when I say this, but mm-hmm. um, we are coming up at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a quite um, a person as well as a talent. Oh. I've, en- I've enjoyed this uh, time with you. This Thank brief you. Time. I'm this I look well. forward to seeing you at 6 p.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church, 1100 Charter Street, plenty of parking on site and in the neighborhood. Um, every Thursday between now and Easter, y'all just have to come and hear a talent like Valerie Francis and so many of the others that are in this program. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, um, Father Maestri, for making this possible. And thank you, everybody in the city, for the help that you give them in helping um, our, our homeless and our people who we hope are going to be able to 
pick up their lives uh, as a result of the help they get from this if program. I can get one more shout out. Shout out to Nickel State University, um, the head of my department, Shane Anderson. He made sure that I could be here today, and I'm very thankful. Nickel Thank State. you all. Thank, Thank you. you all. This is Jean Nathan. This is the beginning of the send up to spring, and uh, Easter will be talking about it a lot. This is Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.